You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 275, The War Goes Dutch. And we last looked in on European affairs in episode 252, when the summer of 1780 saw several riots in London and Dublin, thanks to difficulties caused by the American Revolution. British leaders increasingly found themselves in a political bind. The war that started with the colonial rebellion in North America had spread, first to France in 1778, then Spain in 1779. Britain was used to going to war with these traditional enemies, but it usually had a few European allies by its side. In this war, Britain was not only fighting its own colonists and two of its traditional foes, but was also doing so alone, as its traditional allies in the German states and Portugal and places like that were mostly sitting this one out. The Germans provided a few paid mercenaries, but major powers like Prussia were not fighting along Britain's side against the powers of France and Spain. Despite the forces allied against it, by late 1780, Britain decided it was time to add a third enemy combatant to the war, the Dutch Republic. I should say at the outset, the Dutch Republic was not really a republic as we use that word today. The Dutch people were not electing their leaders or anything crazy like that. Seven small nation-states had united in a confederation to provide mutual defense protection against outside enemies, primarily France at the time, but also Austria. The Dutch government met in The Hague, where representatives from each state could debate and vote on important issues. As a confederation, the individual states largely ruled themselves for internal matters coming together for issues involving foreign policy and military defense. By this time, though, even the individual state sovereignty was a questionable matter. Most of the states were effectively controlled by the monarch who led the powerful House of Orange. For most of the prior century, Britain and the Dutch Republic had largely been allies. Both countries were Protestant, which naturally created some common interest against the Catholic powers of Europe that wanted to destroy them. A century earlier, the relationship was not quite so good. British and Dutch leaders had gone to war three times between 1652 and 1674. At that period, the Dutch had developed a formidable navy and trading fleet that was a challenge to British colonization and international trade. The first Anglo-Dutch War began under Oliver Cromwell when the English demanded that they be recognized as Lord of the Seas and ordered all foreign vessels to salute them. Britain used Dutch refusals as an excuse to capture Dutch merchant fleets and enforce Britain's monopoly trade with its colonies. 
After England restored its monarchy with Charles II, the two countries went to war again in the 1660s, largely to limit the growing power of the Dutch East India Company. It was during this war that Britain took the New Netherlands colonies from the Dutch and renamed them New York. That said, the Dutch mostly got the better of the fighting in this war. In the raid on Medway against Britain, the Dutch fleet destroyed or captured more than a dozen British ships of the line, forcing King Charles to sue for peace. The Third Anglo-Dutch War, only five years later, in the 1670s, saw an unusual alliance of England and France against the Dutch. King Charles II of Britain cut a deal with the King of France, who was trying to capture the Spanish Netherlands, an area that today is part of northern France and Belgium. King Louis paid off King Charles to provide some support to France. The British king went along because the money gave him some independence from Parliament. Unsurprisingly, Parliament opposed the war, in part because it was giving the king more political leverage over them, but also because the Protestant Parliament did not want to fight a war alongside Catholic France against the Protestant Dutch Republic. So in this war, Parliament cut off other funds and stopped repaying the king's debts, leading to a domestic financial crisis. The Dutch did surprisingly well against the combined forces of France and Britain, using privateers to capture several thousand British and French merchant ships. When Parliament cut off the king's funds, he had to sue for peace, and the war ended rather quickly. Following that war, though, and for the next century, Britain and the Netherlands got along pretty well. Now, there were occasional trade disputes, but nothing that led to an all-out war. And of course, things got much better about a decade after the Third Anglo-Dutch War. The Dutch Prince William of Orange married Princess Mary of Britain, the niece of King Charles II of Britain. After King Charles died, his brother, Mary's father, became King James II. The British Parliament then decided to get rid of King James II for being too Catholic, resulting in the Glorious Revolution of 1689. Now remember that less than two decades earlier, William of Orange had been leading a war against Britain. Despite that fact, Parliament now invited the Dutch Prince William and his wife Mary to become the new King and Queen of Britain. Royal intrigue can be funny that way. Anyway, after the British-Dutch alliance brought about by the Glorious Revolution, the Dutch Republic became much weaker as the British East India Company dominated world trade and the British Navy dominated the seas. The Dutch mostly tried to stay out of wars and had remained neutral during the Seven Years' War. When the American Revolution began, William V ruled the Dutch Republic. William's title was actually Stadtholder rather than King. That said, the position was largely the same as a king. The stadtholder served as the head of government and the commander-in-chief of the army. It was also an inherited position. But it wasn't always filled, either. Before and after William III, the Dutch leader who had become king of Britain, the position of stadtholder remained empty for decades. The Prince of Orange in the Netherlands tended to be the most powerful man in the Dutch Republic, but that person did not always have the title of Stadtholder. After William III died childless in 1702, the British monarchy went to his sister-in-law, Queen Anne. His title as Prince of Orange in the Dutch Republic also went to his cousin, 
John William Friso, who also held the position of stadtholder of several individual states within the Dutch Republic. After Friso's death in 1711, his son became William IV, Prince of Orange. William IV revived the position of stadtholder of all United Provinces in 1747 during the War of Austrian Succession. When William IV died of a stroke a few years later in 1751, when he was only 40 years old, his son, William V, inherited his titles and positions. The problem was that William V was only three years old at the time. The practical requirements of leadership during his youth were handled by his mother and grandmother until their deaths. Another man, Duke Louis Ernest, ended up serving as the military commander and eventually as co-regent after William's mother died. The duke was from the German state of Brunswick, but had family ties to both Prussian and Austrian leaders. William IV, William V's father, had appointed the duke field marshal in the Dutch army. When William V turned 18 in 1766, he took over his duties as stadtholder and kept on the duke as a counselor. The duke helped arrange a marriage to William with Princess Wilhelmina of Prussia. She was the niece of Frederick the Great of Prussia and a cousin of George III of Britain. While William was the titular leader of the Dutch Republic, he was not a particularly powerful leader. It seems that Duke Ernest and William's wife, Princess Wilhelmina, vied for most of the -the behind-the-scenes power. William seemed happiest focusing on his art collection. He opened up an art gallery in The Hague in 1774. When the war began in America the following year, he was still only 27 years old. Now, the goal behind all these strategic marriages in Europe among royalty was that they were supposed to help maintain good international relations. After all, you wouldn't want to go to war with a country where your daughter was queen or where your grandson would someday rule. This often meant, though, that royal leaders had allegiances and interests that were quite different from those of the people over whom they ruled. The Dutch Republic, also sometimes called the United Provinces, had other state leaders with influence. There were also very wealthy and influential merchants who ran the Dutch trade worldwide and had their own sets of interests. When the British colonies rebelled in 1775, the Dutch leader, William V, tended to be pro-British and was open to supporting Britain. As I said, he was the cousin of George III. It also made good sense to maintain good diplomatic ties with Britain, since Britain was crucial to keeping Catholic countries like France and Austria from encroaching on Dutch territory. So initially, Britain hoped that the Dutch would be an ally. George III even tried to rent some Dutch troops to go fight in America, as he had done with several German states. As I said, while William was open to this alliance, other interests in the Dutch Republic quashed that idea rather quickly. The Dutch merchants, particularly powerful in Amsterdam, were opposed to any alliance that empowered Britain. The merchants were long frustrated by Britain's dominance of the seas and its willingness to use that dominance to limit Dutch trade. Now, of course, all the Dutch factions knew that joining a war on either side would prove rather costly. As such, they attempted to remain neutral in this fight, even while different factions pursued their own interests. British diplomats attempted to invoke several treaties to gain Dutch support. 
However, as they had in the Seven Years' War, the Dutch refused to get involved in the war and remain neutral. Amsterdam merchants saw an opportunity in trade with the British colonies. This was made possible by the rebellion. In return for guns and munitions, the Dutch merchants got rich importing tobacco and indigo from America, primarily through its Caribbean colony at St. Eustatius. As the war began, these merchants made a fortune in this trade. The Dutch merchants made even more money after France went to war with Britain in 1778. The British Navy blocked imports into France. Dutch merchants could sell military goods to France at huge profits. Based on treaties signed after the Second and Third Anglo-Dutch Wars, Dutch traders were guaranteed free trade to Britain's enemies of all but a few narrowly defined military items. So Dutch merchants were making a fortune, selling ship supplies to France, most of which were being used to build or repair French Navy vessels that were being used against Britain. So at some point, Britain decided that whatever the treaty said, it was just going to seize Dutch vessels trading anything with France that might advance France's war efforts. The Dutch merchants continued to risk the wrath of the British, given the profits that they were making. When John Paul Jones sought harbor in the Dutch port of Texel, aboard a captured British naval vessel, Dutch officials were forced to force him to leave, but they did allow Jones time to repair his ship and to escape the British ships that were trying to catch him. About the same time that Jones slipped away from the British fleet near Texel in late December 1779, British and Dutch officials clashed over another incident. A Dutch merchant fleet of 17 ships also left Texel, supported by five Dutch Navy ships. The British caught up with the Dutch fleet near the Isle of Wight in the English Channel, and British Commodore Charles Fielding demanded a physical search of the ships for contraband. Real Admiral Lodewijk van Bylen, despite being badly outnumbered, refused the search, although he did offer to turn over the ship's manifests. Overnight, 12 of the 17 merchant ships managed to sail away under the cover of darkness. The following morning, the British tried to board and search the remaining merchant ships. The Dutch naval fleet opened fire, despite being heavily outnumbered. The British returned fire, at which time the Dutch struck their colors and surrendered. The British seized the merchant fleet and took them to Portsmouth as prizes. They allowed the Dutch warships to remain at sea as long as they fired a salute to the British flagship. The Dutch Navy then followed its captured merchantmen to Portsmouth, where they filed a complaint with the Dutch ambassador. Back in Holland, Dutch leaders were outraged by this seizure of neutral vessels, not carrying any contraband. Now, up until this time, the Dutch had been bending over backwards to try to comply with most of the British demands about what their ships could or couldn't carry. After this incident, the Dutch just removed those restrictions. By April of 1780, the British responded by abrogating a hundred-year-old treaty that respected Dutch commerce. These incidents helped encourage Russia's creation of the League of Armed Neutrals, where neutral European powers agreed that they would support each other militarily against searches and seizures of their ships in the open sea. The Dutch sought to join the League in December of 1780. Now, it was the Dutch Republic's decision to join the League of Armed Neutrals that created a much greater diplomatic headache for the British. 
future searches of Dutch vessels could result in Russia and other countries in the League going to war against Britain as well. So, to avoid this, Britain simply declared war on the Dutch Republic, citing a number of other issues. In doing this, the British hoped to keep the rest of the League members, especially Russia, from joining in the war against Britain. The Dutch only had maybe 20 ships of the line, so if a fight could be limited to them alone, the risk to Britain was not that great. The important thing was keeping Russia and the rest of the League of Armed Neutrals from combining with the Dutch against Britain. Of course, Russia had no desire to go to war with Britain, and they seemed willing to cut loose the Dutch if they had diplomatic cover to do so. And Britain made every effort to provide that cover by arguing that the Dutch Republic was not acting as a neutral. One issue the British raised was the Dutch granting of safe harbor to John Paul Jones aboard the captured British Navy ship Serapis a year earlier. And if you want to hear more details on that, go back and listen to episode 233. The main issue, however, fell into British hands a few months earlier, in September of 1780. Recall that the Continental Congress had sent its former president, Henry Lawrence, to the Dutch Republic in order to establish diplomatic relations and secure more loans from Dutch merchants for the American war effort. Although Congress had appointed Lawrence in October of 1779, a series of delays prevented him from crossing the Atlantic until August of 1780. When he did attempt it, the British Navy intercepted Lawrence's ship, the Mercury, and took Lawrence prisoner. During the capture, Lawrence had attempted to throw overboard any documents that he did not want captured. The British managed to pull at least one of Lawrence's chests out of the water, and that chest contained a draft treaty of commerce worked out by William Lee and an Amsterdam banker named Jean de Neuville. Now, the treaty was just a draft, and it wasn't even written by any Dutch government officials and had no legal basis. It was simply a document with some ideas that the two men in Europe had discussed as something the Americans hoped would eventually become a basis for negotiating a future treaty. The document had been carried to America, where Lawrence received it in Congress, and he took it with him in hopes that he could use it as a reference point to start negotiations with the Dutch. The British, however, presented the document as proof that the Dutch were already in the process of negotiating a treaty with the Americans and therefore were not neutral. As a result, the League of Armed Neutrals should not support the Dutch Republic as part of its league. And that strategy pretty much worked, because the League did not back the Dutch Republic once Britain declared war. Now, Britain's declaration of war caught the Dutch by surprise. The British managed to capture several Dutch warships in the West Indies before the Dutch officers even knew that the countries were at war. Britain also seized hundreds of Dutch merchant ships and prevented hundreds more from being able to leave port and engage in any trade. Much of the Dutch Navy remained anchored at Texel, unable to challenge the blockading British fleet. Over the next few months, Britain would capture several Dutch colonies, including St. Eustatius and St. Martin. Britain also captured all the Dutch colonies on the Indian subcontinent and attempted to capture South Africa, but failed in that effort. And because they were so heavily outgunned, the British first turned to Catherine the Great of Russia to negotiate a resolution to the conflict. Russia agreed to mediate, and both sides participated in the mediation, 
but neither was really willing to compromise, and so the mediation came to nothing. In frustration, the Dutch Republic eventually reached an understanding with France that the two countries would act in concert against Britain. The two countries never signed a formal treaty, but this agreement was about as close as they were going to get. Now, given the poor state of its navy, the Dutch Republic could do rather little to impact the outcome of the war. The British strategy of declaring war on the Dutch to prevent the League of Armed Neutrals from going to war had paid off for Britain very well. Britain's need to maintain the blockade against the Dutch coast helped weaken its naval forces, though, elsewhere, and may have contributed to some naval losses against France and Spain. A third European enemy in this war was really the last thing that Britain needed. After Henry Lawrence got thrown into the Tower of London, John Adams took up his role with the Dutch Republic. Adams traveled from France to negotiate with the Dutch, and he eventually secured more loans, and by 1782 concluded a treaty of amity and commerce between the U.S. and the Dutch Republic. Now next week, we're going to head back to America, where General Washington welcomes the new year of 1781 with the mutinies of the Pennsylvania and New Jersey lines in the Continental Army. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, Michael Gaylord, and John Celentano and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard, and 10CrucialDays.org. Thanks also to Martin Nilsson, William McBride, and Cheryl Martin Moe for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. For anyone who would like to make a one-time gift, I have links on my website and blog. My website is available at www.amrevpodcast.com. Now, this week's episode focused on Dutch entry into the war. The Dutch contribution to the war is largely forgotten since it started so late in the war, less than a year before Yorktown, and because the Dutch military really didn't have much impact. A century earlier, when the three Anglo-Dutch wars took place, the Netherlands was really an important world power. By the time of this war, however, 
the Netherlands was still a major mercantile power, but had let its military become too small to keep up with the other major powers. And this war made that point all too clear to the Dutch. William V's support for Britain and his poor leadership during the war led to a growing patriot movement within the Netherlands to remove him from power. Shortly after the war ended, William moved to a country estate and stayed largely out of the political fray. The growing patriot movement eventually led Frederick the Great of Prussia to invade the Netherlands in 1787. After revolutionary France invaded the Netherlands, William fled to London and ordered his governors to turn over their lands to Britain in order to prevent them from falling to France. His son, William VI, returned to the Netherlands to proclaim himself King William I in 1815, first establishing the Dutch monarchy. His son, William II, would continue his reign, but ceded government rule to a parliamentary democracy in 1848. That royal line remains the nominal leader of the country to this day. My book recommendation looks at the time period that kicks off this war, which leads to several decades of political turmoil in the Netherlands. Patriots and Leaders, Revolution in the Netherlands, 1780-1813, by Simon Schama. Now, I know much of this book gets a little far afield from the American Revolution taking place after the war, but it's really part of the story about how the American Revolution began to have a worldwide impact. So, if you're interested, Patriots and Leaders, Revolution in the Netherlands, 1780-1813, by Simon Schama. My online recommendation is one of the few works I found that was really on point on today's topic. It's a book called The Dutch Republic and the American Revolution, by Friedrich Edler. It's fairly short, about 250 pages, and focuses on the events leading up to the war between Britain and the Netherlands, the period of Dutch neutrality, and the war itself. Since the book was first published in 1911, it is public domain and freely available on archive.org. As always, you can find a direct link to the book on my blog episode for this week. And just a reminder, although I recommend a book and an online source for each podcast episode, if you really want to get into a topic, I have many more sources listed on my blog. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for those details and more. There's also, of course, a complete transcript of the episode, as well as relevant pictures and anything else I have to add. My question this week comes from friend of the show, Farron Shear, who asks, Recently, I saw some Republican primary candidates promising to restore the name of Fort Bragg. That got me thinking about how there is barely anything in the U.S. honoring Benedict Arnold, despite him at one point being one of the best military leaders we had. But how do we decide who gets honored this way and who doesn't? Are there other people known at the time to be disagreeable that we went ahead and honored this way? Are there things named for British loyalists after the war, or mostly towns and roads that predated the revolution? Well, Farron, I do try to avoid modern politics on this podcast, and the question of statues and renaming military bases has become a modern political debate. So I'm going to try to answer this question not by giving an opinion about how we should memorialize past leaders, but the reason why we memorialize some and ignore others. 
As I see it, statues and memorials have less to do with the individuals themselves and more to do with people living in the time when the statue was made. For example, Christopher Columbus statues became particularly popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in America, primarily because political leaders wanted to appeal to the growing Italian immigrant population in America. The issue of Confederate memorials has been highly controversial as of late. Confederate memorials became popular really beginning in the 1890s as the generation that fought the war was dying off from old age and their children and grandchildren sought to honor them. Over time, many of these memorials were actually seen as a way of healing the nations after the divisions of the Civil War. The federal government named a great many forts and other federal properties after Confederate leaders as a way of bowing to Southern heritage and Southern voters, and it was seen as a form of healing. You mentioned Fort Bragg, which is of course named after General Braxton Bragg, who served as a U.S. Army captain in the Mexican War and later served as a Confederate general in the Civil War. Fort Bragg received its name when it was established during World War I in North Carolina, where General Bragg was born. Today, of course, popular opinion has moved in a very different direction. That thing about healing divisions between the North and the South was that it ignored the views of African Americans who were not exactly proud of the Confederate leaders from their home regions. To them, these leaders were not seen as heroes fighting for Southern freedom, but rather as military oppressors defending race-based atrocities. These views of African Americans were not particularly important to political leaders when black people could not vote, which was effectively the case until the 1960s. But as the black vote has become more important, political leaders have taken notice and been more willing to act accordingly. As such, most of these statues have come down, and the federal government has been in the process of renaming many of these forts. But memorials for political reasons is not unique to the U.S. After all, there's a statue of George Washington in London. Now, it's not that the British people regard Washington as a British hero, but Washington is seen as someone who fought for a noble cause, and also Britain really values its relationship with the United States, and celebrating some American heroes is a part of that. I say all this, which really has nothing to do with the American Revolution, as a way of prefacing why someone like Benedict Arnold, who was a political and military leader during the war, had no advocates in the U.S. after the war. Confederates may have fought against the U.S. government, but they did so on behalf of their states and the local people who lived there. Arnold's betrayal was only himself. He did not do it on behalf of anyone else. As such, he's not only been denied any monuments, but he was largely wiped out of American history books for many years. As for other British names in America, you will find some geographic references to British leaders, mostly from the colonial era before the war, for example, Pittsburgh or Fairfax County. You'll also find a whole bunch of towns and even some states named after former kings. You may find a few towns named for leaders during the war who were sympathetic to the American cause, like Camden or Wilkes-Barre, but you won't find many names for those who actively fought against the cause. For example, leaders like Lord Dunmore or Governor Tryon, who actively fought on the Loyalist side. There was a Dunmore County in Virginia that was renamed Shenandoah County, and Tryon County, New York, was later renamed Montgomery County. As for other Loyalists from the war, 
there was no period in America like there was in the post-Reconstruction South, where loyalists came back into favor even among the locals, as was the case for Confederate leaders. As such, you never have a time when there were many monuments or other memorials to the loyalist leaders. Of course, if you travel to Canada, where many of the loyalists ended up, you can find street names and other memorials remembering these men as heroes. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me, either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.